Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come this morning again to worship your holy name, to thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us, your people. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, for willingly coming and sacrificing himself that we may not be consumed, that we may have life, forgiveness of sins in him, that we may have an everlasting righteousness. Lord, we thank you. For we were not looking for these things. We did not know we needed these things. And yet, Lord, because of your love for us in Christ Jesus, you accomplished our salvation. So, Lord, even though we stumble in many ways, even though we struggle with our sin, Lord, we know that we stand firm in who Christ is and what he has done for us. And may this be a great reminder to all your people, wherever they are and in what capacity they find themselves in with the circumstances of this life. Lord, may they be reminded of who Christ is and what he has done because he alone is our hope. We thank you, Lord. May you speak to us by your word. May you encourage us. May you show us the things that we need to understand. We pray and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our teaching this morning is going to be from Psalm 50. Going to be from Psalm 50. Psalms 15. Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph, the mighty one, God the Lord has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him and it shall be very tempestuous all around him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear all my people, and I will speak, all Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor gods out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountain, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine, and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of gods? Offer to God thanksgiving, and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, What right have you to declare my statutes, or take my covenant in your mouth? Seeing you hate instruction, and cast my words behind you. When you saw a thief, you consented with him, and have been a partaker with adulterers. You give your mouth to evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. 
You thought that I was all together like you, but I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this, you who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. Whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. Our sermon title is verse 15. <laughs> and verse 15 has three titles in it that we are going to work. Call upon me in the day of trouble is title number one. And number two is I will deliver you. Number three is you shall glorify me. Oh, those are wonderful words, I'm telling you. <laughs> Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Asaph was a Levite who wrote this psalm. He also wrote Psalms 73 to 83. In Chronicles, First Chronicles Chapter 16, 1 Chronicles 16, verses 4 to 7. We are told this. And he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to commemorate, to thank and to praise the Lord God of Israel. Asaph the chief, and next to him, Zechariah, then Jeriel, or Je, Je, <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce that. Shemiramoth, Matithiah, Eliab, Benaniah, and Obed-Edom. Jeriel with stringed instruments and harps, but Esaph made music with cymbals. Benaniah and Jahaziel, the priests, regularly blew the trumpets before the Ark of the Covenant of God. On that day, David first delivered this psalm into the hand of Asaph and his brethren to thank the Lord. So what is happening there is Asaph was a Levite who was leading music. And they used to praise and worship God through psalms like this one. But in that, God was also preaching the gospel. These men were not just making up things from their own heads. They were speaking by the Spirit of Christ. And so if they were speaking by the Spirit of Christ, then they were preaching the gospel. And so we're going to find the gospel. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful gospel message from this story. And it is a communion message. And we love to talk about the gospel of God's free and sovereign grace because it is the only gospel there is. It is the only gospel that gives you any kind of hope whatsoever. It is such work that the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished for us. But before we get into the meat of the teaching, we need to build some background and some understanding about what is happening or what is going to happen, the psalmist here brings the revelation of God in the context of judgment. This is a psalm that is talking about judgment. And the scriptures are clear that God is going to judge all men, that we shall all going to appear before him and to give account of everything that has been done in the flesh. And even the Lord Jesus Christ talked about bringing into account every idle word that has been spoken. And every thought that ever came through your mind, God is going to reveal it on that day. So let's read the scriptures and hear what the Bible 
is saying or has said about judgment. Let's go to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 1 to 16 because it's very important for our setting. Romans chapter 2 verses 1 to 16. Apostle Paul records for us and says, Therefore you are inexcusable, all men, whoever you are, who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, all men, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you escape the judgment of God? Verse 4, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each one according to his deeds? Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law, and as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. In the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. And this is the very same thing that the Lord Jesus Christ said in John 12 verse 48. John 12 verse 48, the Lord Jesus Christ said, He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings, is one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is the word of Christ. And it is these sayings that God is going to use to judge those who do not receive the gospel. And Jesus again would say in Matthew sixteen twenty-seven, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father, with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. We're going to keep going on that theme. Apostle Paul again says in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 9 to 11, 2 Corinthians 5 verses 9 to 11, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one 
may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade all men. We persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. I think that's the proper way to say it. And we'll, we'll finish that part of the judgment in Revelation 20, verses 11 and 12. In Revelation 20, verse 11 to 12, Apostle John records and says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So that is the word of the Lord on judgment. Of course, you can find a lot of this teaching everywhere in the Bible. It's just so pervasive in the whole writ. So those are sufficient verses for us to establish our background so that we may really appreciate what it is that we are talking about when we are talking about the gospel of Christ. Why is the gospel such wonderful news? God is actually going to judge all the nations. God is going to judge all the nations, and that means all the peoples of the world. They have to appear before him. And he is going to judge them according to truth. He is going to judge them according to truth, and according to his righteousness, the righteousness of the gospel. And to judge means to weigh one in a scale to see how much they weigh compared to Christ. You are being put in a scale, and that scale is the righteousness of God. And you are going to be found either balancing that scale, or you're going to be found wanting. And I'll tell you that the scale that God uses is a very just scale and it is impossible to balance. It is impossible. God is not going to judge men by the standard of their neighbors or their friends or themselves, but by the standard of his law, by the standard of Jesus Christ, by the standard of the gospel, by the standard of his own righteousness. And every man and woman and child is going to appear before him and they are going to appear by themselves. They are not going to appear by their church denomination or with their parents or with their grandparents or with their pastor or with their country. They are going to appear by themselves. And when you appear, you shall either be standing in Christ or standing by your own hind legs. Those are the only two ways of standing. Those are the only two ways of appearing before him. When you get to stand before him, you are going to stand either in Christ Jesus or you're going to be standing by yourself. And we know that many knees shall be knocking and shaking on that day and there are going to be a lot of sweating and gnashing of teeth because many shall not be able 
to hold their own weight, and every mouth shall be shut. And all these powerful people who hate Christ, and everyone who hates Christ and his gospel, they shall be like cold puppies before Christ, very afraid and vulnerable like never before. All those who hate God, and those who hate his people, and those who hate his Christ, are going to be in much fear like they've never had fear before. There's a saying that he who loves last, loves the best. And I'm going to say he who loves last, loves the best and the longest. <laughs> and the redeemed are they who only shall love last and the best. Because it is well with them. It is well with them. God is pleased with them. God loves them and has accepted them on account of Christ. They are his people and they have nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing that can separate them from his love for them in Christ even on that day. But let us talk more about righteousness and our real problems. If we fail to define the real issues of humanity, then we will take anything for a solution to our problems. The real issues that we have is not man against man. The real issues that we have is man against God. Or even more importantly, is God against man. <laughs> That's the real issue. The problem that we have as sinners is that we cannot and are unable to produce the righteousness that can balance the scales of God. If you were born in Adam like you and I, it is impossible to work out our own righteousness that leads to eternal life. It is too little, too late to try and be good before God as to be accepted by him. Everything else that we think is a problem is not really anything in the context of sin and salvation. The things that we say are problems are not really problems because they are all temporary. The real problem that we have is righteousness. We lack righteousness and we are not good enough to satisfy the justice that God demands. The justice that the law of God demands. We naturally do not have the ability to go to heaven on account of our own goodness. I have the natural ability to move from Ohio and live in Kentucky. Go from Kentucky and go to Tennessee just like that. Without anybody asking me why I am crossing the border from Ohio to Kentucky. But I do not have the same ability to cross from here and go to heaven. I don't. God already has issued an executive order, an executive decree to stop any attempts to come to heaven if you were born in Adam. That decree was signed way back. <laughs> so country of origin matters even when we are talking about heavenly matters. The gospel is also an immigration issue as much as it is a legal issue. 
How does one acquire heavenly citizenship? How do we acquire the legal papers for us to go to heaven? Do we work for it? Do we pay it? Do we buy it? How much do we have to pay? How do we get it? Do we freely get it? How do we get the right to enter into the blessedness of God? If men understood what this problem is about, they would all be wailing and mourning, saying, War is me, I am undone, I am ruined, all wretched woman or man that I am who shall deliver me from this body of death. Because I'm telling you, people don't understand the issue of the gospel. People are not thinking about judgment. People are not seeing Christ as blessed as he is. People are undervaluing the person and work of Christ Jesus. Because if Christ was that important, we would be having more people coming to church than are marching around. But people are not coming to church. Why? Because Christ is not that important. Okay, Christ is not that important. They could do it without him. The gospel would be so much good news to everyone and we'll be having church in stadiums. <laughs> but not that fast. Because there are some who already have church in stadiums, but they still have not discovered what the gospel is all about. They think the gospel is about answering the day-to-day things of life. They think, well, Jesus was given to answer to our needs, employment needs, health needs. And once you cast the gospel in those terms, then there's not much good news for anyone because if it's about money, I still find that I require more money. (laughs) It doesn't matter how much you give me, I still need more money. The gospel, to be understood as the gospel, it has to be cast in terms of the justice of God. It has to be cast in terms of the holiness and righteousness of God. And when we do that, we begin to ask the question, how shall one escape from death? How shall one escape from the second death in the lake of fire? We begin to ask questions like, how am I going to get the passport to make it to heaven? How am I going to get the visa to go to heaven? How am I going to get that red passport, that diplomatic passport that is stamped in the ink of the righteousness of Christ? How am I going to get that passport? Because if I don't have that passport that says, Jesus Christ alone, and that has the blood of Christ alone, then I cannot get entry. Between now and death, it should be our primary occupation to establish how such a sinner as you and me can escape on that day because the day of our judgment has been appointed. And it is not too late for us to examine our gospel to see if it is the kind of gospel that God has given. Because there's only one gospel, there's only one Christ, there's one spirit, there's one baptism, and there's one righteousness that God will honor. And that is the righteousness of Christ alone. And the one who has found an answer to that, the one who has found an answer to how they will meet God in peace on judgment day, 
is a blessed man or woman. When we're talking about blessing, it has to be in the context of salvation. Why? Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2, David says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's the blessing of the gospel. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. And this, my friends, is the beauty and the wonder and the hope and glory and security of the gospel that should warm your heart up forever that the Lord will not impute or reckon sin to some people, not everybody, but some people. And you happen to be one of those people to whom sin shall not be imputed. And if your sin is forgiven, it means your sin is not imputed to you. It means you are righteous. It means you are righteous. But being righteous and being a sinner do not go in the same sentence. There's nothing called a righteous sinner. They don't go in the same sentence. But yes, we are. We are sinners who are righteous. How come? Because of the scandal of the gospel. The gospel is an offense and a scandalous affair because it declares the unrighteous, the sinners like you, that you are righteous. It declares righteous, the unrighteous. And that is why it is called the gospel of free and sovereign grace. It makes one righteous on account of another so that God is just and the justifier of those who believe in Christ Jesus. So the gospel makes a sinner to be righteous on account of another. Not on account of your righteousness. Not on account of your own obedience. Because you do not have any obedience to exchange for life. Your obedience is but a filthy rag, according to Isaiah. So let's talk about sin. Because if we are going to have judgment, then there has to be sin. God would not bring anyone to judgment who has not sinned. Sin is a transgression of the law. It is missing the mark of God's standard. It is missing the mark of God's righteousness. God's righteousness is unattainable by human flesh. Even Adam, in the brief days of his innocence, failed. And it is folly to say like what I saw a few days ago on Facebook. Someone said, a sovereign grace person, they said that Adam had the same holiness and righteousness as Jesus Christ. And they even challenged on that page and said, will you show me anywhere that Christ was superior to Adam? Yes. You show me anywhere in the scriptures where Jesus Christ was superior to Adam, Adam the man from the dust, the Adam who fell. <laughs> it is foolishness and unbelievable that someone who claims to know Christ would even say that. Who is Jesus Christ? 
Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. He is holy and righteous, undefiled, separate from sinners from eternity to eternity. I was very disappointed. But you see, there are a lot of people who are not born again, who are around the things of Christ, but who are not yet born again because the Holy Spirit would not allow such a testimony to form in your mind. It would not. But talking about sin and righteousness, God's righteousness is the righteousness that has to be met for one to have life. The righteousness of God has to be met if one has to have life. But you and I are sinners. And so God has to bring us into judgment. But when we talk about judgment, we always have to talk about sin. We can't talk about judgment without talking about sin. And we can't talk about the gospel without talking about sin. And so the churches who say, well, we are not talking about sin anymore, means they are not preaching the gospel anymore. And we can't talk about sin without talking about the law. And when we talk about the law, we have to talk about the justice of God. And when we talk about the justice of God, we have to talk about satisfaction. And when we are talking like that, we are beginning to talk the language of courts. This is now legal stuff. We are talking about the law, and so we are talking about the judge. And when we talk about the law and the judge, we are talking about the prosecutor pressing charges against the accused, the defendant. Now, when we have someone being accused, then we have to talk about defense lawyers. We have to have advocates. We now have the whole legal system. And when we have the whole legal system, we have to talk about the outcome of the court process. Are we going to have satisfaction of the law and then have acquittal, vindication, and freedom for the accused? And if there's no satisfaction and one is found guilty, they are condemned, there's loss of freedom, there's jail time. That is very important to understand our gospel and especially in the context of Psalm 50. In Psalm 50, we are now going to our text. We have a court in session and we have participants in the court session. Here verse, verses 1 to 4. Psalm 50, verse 1 to 4. The mighty one, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. God will shine forth. Our God shall come and shall not keep silent. A fire shall devour before him, and he shall be very tempestuous all around him. He shall call to the heavens from above and to the earth that he may judge his people. So Asaph described for us a courtroom scene in which this one called the mighty one, God the Lord. See? Those three descriptors. He's the mighty one, God, the Lord. Three designations, three designations for the Lord. And he comes to judge. It is God who is coming to judge, not the angels. The judgment to life or condemnation is the sole right or prerogative of God. 
It is God who comes to judge his people. And in judging his people, God shows himself to be God. And he is vindicating his own righteousness. And so God summoned everyone on the earth from the east to the west, north and south, to come before him. From beautiful Zion, the place of the temple, God shines forth. He is coming from Zion. And as he is coming to judge, his presence is accompanied by devouring fire and a raging tempest. So God shall not keep silent. God is long-suffering, but he is going to judge. He will come to reveal all the hidden things in judgment. All the hidden things he is going to reveal. Daniel 2.22 Daniel 2.22 Daniel says, He, God, reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. God knows everything that is in the darkness. 1 Corinthians 4.5 Apostle Paul says, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. Then each one's praise will come from God. Job 12 verse 22 Job 12 verse 22 He uncovers deep things out of darkness and brings the shadow of death to light. Luke 12 verses 2 and 3 This is the Lord Jesus Christ talking. He says, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. (laughs) It's going to happen. On this very day, it is all going to happen when the Lord appears. So there's going to be much fear and trembling, as I said before. But going back to Psalm 50, I want you to see that the Lord God had two groups of people that he summoned to judgment. And at separate times, facing different charges. There's one group called the saints who are described in verses 7 to 15. And the wicked, verses 16 to 23. There are two groups of people in there. There's this group that God identified this way. Verse 5 of Psalm 50. Gather my saints together, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Gather my godly ones, my saints, the faithful ones, together with me. Well, (laughs) stop. How did these become the godly ones before you had even pressed any charges against them? How did they become saints? I thought the purpose of judging 
was to determine whether they were saints or not. These are guilty people. Why are they called the faithful ones? How can you be faithful when you are guilty? Why are they called godly saints? I thought this was a court in which the charges have to be brought forward before anyone could be pronounced a saint. What is wrong with this judge? Is he a paid and corrupt judge? I thought a saint is one who had many good works like Mother Teresa. But these people are in trouble and yet are called his saints. His saints, why? Because a saint has to be one who is righteous. A saint is one who is holy. Set apart in Christ Jesus. But how did these become saints? These are sinful men and women. How did they become saints? Rome would say they became saints by doing wonderful works. Armenians would say they became saints by choosing Jesus and doing more works in his name. But the text does not say that. What does it say? The text says, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The saints are they who made a covenant with God by way of a sacrifice. What sacrifice and what covenant? How do people make a covenant with God? Do they go on a Daniel fast? Do they make that many covenants as people do at the beginning of every year, they go and they begin to fast and say, God, I am entering into a covenant with you. Here is my whatever amount. Is that how we make a covenant with God? Is that the way of sacrifice that is being talked about? This is how. Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 6. Isaiah 42 verses 1 to 6. Isaiah says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. Verse 6, listen to that. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand and I'll keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles. Christ is he who was given as a covenant to the people by the Father. It is he who made a covenant by the sacrifice of his body to the Father on behalf of his people. This is talking 
about the Lord Jesus Christ being the surety of his people in the covenant of grace. Him coming and dying for them in their place and for their benefit. So there is election that is assumed in this language. Christ is the elect one of God, but not only that, we are the elect ones in Christ Jesus. So the saints are they who were put into the covenant of grace by the Father, by election in Christ. And only these that are in the covenant made by sacrifice are called the saints, the holy ones. They are the ones who were set aside by God for his own use. They are not being holy because of their own goodness, not because of their own obedience, not because of the works that they have done, but because of election in Christ, in the covenant of grace. So you see the fundamental things that are being taught here. These people are holy, they are saints because of two things. Because of the covenant in which they were put in and because of the sacrifice that Christ made for them. That's how we are called the saints of God. And that is the only way to be holy. Election by grace in Christ Jesus is what makes you holy before God. But listen to Verse 6 of Psalm 15. The psalmist says, Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Let the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. In this gathering, God's righteousness is declared from the heavens with witnesses from both heaven and earth. And this judgment is according to his righteousness. And it is going to be a righteous judgment. But not only that, it is for declaring the righteousness of God. Because God himself will be the judge. But there's something that Jesus said that is very peculiar. Jesus said this in John 5. Go to John 5, verses 18 to 23. John 5, 18-23. John records for us and says, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Pay attention to the remainder of the verses. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. Why Jesus? Verse 23, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Do you see what Jesus is claiming? The psalmist says, God himself is the judge. 
Jesus shows up and he says, I am the judge. <laughs> Jesus is claiming that all judgment has been given to him. Judgment has not been given to the angels. Judgment has been given to the son. So that is telling us what? See again what Psalm 50 is saying. When the psalmist opened the writing, he said, the one who comes is the almighty God. He is the Lord and he is God. So this one who comes to judge is God himself. And Jesus says, I am the judge. So Jesus is saying, I am God. Because we have people who say, oh, Jesus nowhere ever said that he was God. But the problem is because they don't know how to read the Bible. Jesus was always saying that he was God. So Jesus here by these statements is claiming that he is God and is equal with God. Otherwise, the father would not give him the right to judge because he has to bring the righteousness of God with him. It's amazing that you would find anybody who is professing to be a Christian who denies the deity of Christ. When you deny the deity of Christ, then you are not saved. There's no way, there's no beating about the bush on that one. If you deny that Jesus Christ is God, then you are not born again. Because you can't be born again and not have that testimony. Because the testimony of Christ does not come from your reading of the Bible. It comes from the Holy Spirit. For none can say Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. But these people are going to find out too late that Jesus is actually God. <laughs> Salvation is the revelation of the righteousness of God in the person of Christ Jesus. Okay? Very important. But let's hear the charges that were being pressed. The charges that were being pressed against the saints. Verses 7 to 13 of Psalm 50. God says, Hear all my people, and I will speak all Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God your God. I will not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are continually before me. I will not take a bull from your house, nor gods out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of gods? Israel, God's chosen people, are being rebuked for their sacrifices. Why rebuke them when it is you who commanded the sacrifices. What is God saying? God is saying, I am not taking a sacrifice from your hands, not from your animals, that you thought were your animals. I am not taking anything from your tithes and offerings. I am weary of them. I hate them and I can't bear them. This language, you actually find it in Isaiah. I think it's Isaiah chapter 1. God says, I don't want it. What is it that you are going to give me that I should be obligated to you? That's the question. Your cooking is so bad that if I were hungry, I would not even ask you to make me chicken nuggets. Remember, these are people 
who are godly by reason of the covenant of sacrifice. And God says, do not think you have pleased me with those sacrifices. Do not think you have pleased me with anything that you have done for me. Your relationship with me is not from what you have offered to me or what you are offering to me. Do not think I am obligated to you because of them or anything that you have done for that matter. And many people in the church think that their standing before God is because of something that they have done for him. They think they can bait God in exchange for salvation. Like, okay, look at what I have done for you, God. Now, in the light of that, can you exchange that with righteousness? Can you exchange my offerings to you with eternal life? And that is the whole prosperity gospel teaching. Seeding and sowing. But God says, yes, you have offered them, but there's a problem. You have put your hope in them. And making that the end of true religion. Let me tell you something. God says, I have not been benefited at all by them. Why? Because all that you are offering to me is mine. (laughs) So you are not improving my situation. I am not seeking the blood of bulls and gods for they do not take away your sin. Listen to me, people. Your standing before me is not because of what you are giving me. You are not saints by what you have done for me, but what I did for you. When I put you in the covenant of grace, when I gave you Jesus Christ as your sacrifice. So forget about your offerings. Listen to this. Psalm 40. Let's go to Psalm 40. This big teaching in the Old Testament, actually. Psalm 40, verse 6 to 10, is a recurrent theme. Psalm 40, verse 6 to 10, we hear this. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. What is that saying? Just looking at verse 6. God did not institute the burnt and sin offerings so as to remove sin but to teach of what was required to remove sin. These were but shadows of the true sin offering the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so he would come and say, listen to verse 7 going forward, Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord. You yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. So that is Jesus speaking in Psalm 40. And the writer of Hebrews would come And he would cut that part and expand it. Let's go to Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 to 10 is very good. The writer of Hebrews comes and he says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, 
and not the very image of the things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. And that's what God was saying to them in Psalm 50, to say every time you bring those sacrifices, guess what? That is not helping you. It's just reminding you of your sins. But in those sacrifices, verse 3, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and gods could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ Jesus once for all. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. The majority of the church continues to talk the language that the believer is still under Moses. That is contrary to what has just been said. The law of Moses is a contract and it comes as a unit. It has its own priesthood. It has its own sacrifices. It has its own terms. The covenant of grace comes with its own priesthood, with its own terms, with its own promises. And the writer of Hebrews says, when Christ came, he took away the first, that he may establish the second. Jesus was not the high priest of the law of Moses. Jesus Christ was not the mediator of the law of Moses. He took those away. He removed, he displaced by fulfillment that he may establish the second one. We are in the second one, folks. And if we continue to go back and try to bring Moses that we may be married to both Moses and Jesus, then we are not understanding the gospel. I'm telling the truth. It may appear like people are being righteous when they go about claiming that they're doing the law, but they are going against the testimony of Jesus himself. So what is the conclusion of the matter with respect to this particular section? The conclusion of the matter is that by that will of God, we have been sanctified not through the law, but through the offering of the body of Christ once for all time. The blood of bulls and gods, the old covenant, the law could not purify you and I. It could not make our conscience clean. We are not sanctified by the offerings that we make before God, which means we are not sanctified by the things that we do ourselves. We are sanctified in the offering of Christ. 
it is he who sanctified us by his body, by his blood, by his righteousness. Okay? Psalm 50, verse 14 and 15. God then says, let me tell you of the perfect way. Let me show you the correct way. I have rebuked you, but I'm going to tell you the perfect way. Verse 14 and 15, Psalm 50. Offer to God thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Now God tells his people what he meant by those sacrifices. He tells them what they were supposed to do. He says, there's no hope for you in those sacrifices, but offer to God a different kind of sacrifice, an offering of thanksgiving, and pay your vows to the Most High. Why thanksgiving? Because he has accomplished our salvation. There's nothing that we can bring to add to that or to make it better. Thanking God is our reasonable service. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for completing our salvation. These are good manners. <laughs> God is teaching them how to be good-mannered children. Thank you. Instead of making new covenants with God at the beginning of each year, why not say, thank you, Lord, for an accomplished salvation? Do you know that that testimony is very hard to find in the majority of churches? To say, thank you, Jesus, for an accomplished salvation. Thank you for your wonderful grace, amazing grace, marvelous grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Grace that said, it is finished. There's nothing that we could offer to him to gain salvation or end salvation. Not money, not our tears, not our repentance. These do not make satisfaction for sin. These do not satisfy the justice of God. The gospel is so called because the blood of Christ satisfied the justice of God for you forever. <laughs> it was the blood of Christ alone that made satisfaction of God's justice, satisfaction of your sin debt, satisfaction for the sentence of death that was on us, satisfaction of the law. And all the saints are taught by God to bring this testimony. They are taught by God not to bring their own sacrifices, but to bring only the testimony of Christ. They know what God requires of them. He has already given them in Christ. They know that Christ is their covenant. They know he is their only sacrifice. Here again, what the Lord Jesus said in Psalm 40. Psalm 40, verse 8 to 10, the Lord Jesus said, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord, you yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. Jesus is he who delighted 
in doing the will of God. He said to do the will of the Father was his food. And the saints, the great assembly, are they who do not work to end salvation, but they proclaim the good news of the righteousness of God in the great assembly. They declare the gospel of Christ and his finished work of salvation. And that is what is pleasing to God. We have people who come and ask and say, what things shall I do to please God? They think if we tell them to give 5% or 10% or 20%, that's what pleases God. No, he has already rejected the sacrifices. What is it that pleases God? We have it right here in Psalm 40. Proclaim the good news of the righteousness of Christ. Do not restrain your lips. Do not hide the righteousness of Christ within your heart. Declare the faithfulness of God and his salvation. Do not conceal or hide the gospel of grace and his truth from the great assembly, the church. This is what pleases him. Everything else that we may do only pleases us. And there's no hope in that. Psalm 50 verse 15, the psalmist says, God says through the psalmist, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But Lord, the day of trouble is already here. Have you not been reading the news? The day of trouble is already here. Don't we have cable? <laughs> we are already in trouble. There is uncertainty in the country. No, that is not the trouble that God is talking about. Judgment is the day of trouble that is in view and in the context of the text. But the Lord says, call on me. Now, that is very important understanding because this one who is coming and saying to call on me is the one who is coming to judge God's people. And not only is he God, and not only is he the judge, he is also the defense lawyer. <laughs> Did you hear me that? <laughs> the one who has summoned everyone to judgment, he is God. He is the judge. He is the prosecutor. And then he says, call on me on the day of trouble. He is the advocate for the saints. Is not the Lord Jesus Christ our advocate? Jesus Christ is our advocate. Is he not also our judge? Yes, Jesus Christ is our judge. So God is the prosecutor. He is the judge and advocate for the saints. And that is scandalous. There's no court system in the world that works like that. Acquittal in such a system is guaranteed. I'm telling you, if the judge is your prosecutor and is also your defender, you're going to get acquitted. Listen to this. What is happening? The saints are called here. Pay attention to what God is saying. The saints are called not to defend themselves on the day of judgment. He says, don't defend yourself. What are you supposed to do? Call on me. Call on him who is the judge. You're calling on the judge to defend you. Romans 10, 13, Apostle Paul says, 
Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever calls. What is that saying? It is only the saints who call on the name of the Lord because the wicked don't. So the whoever who calls on the name of the Lord is not talking about free will in salvation. A lot of people go to Romans 10, 13 to try and prove free will. That's not what that is saying. This is an address to people who are the saints already. And God is giving them reassurance and saying, whoever calls on my name on that day shall be saved. But it is only the saints who shall call on his name. So Romans 10, 13 was given in the context of judgment. And it is stating the truth of what is going to happen to all those who are saints, all saints will call on the name of the Lord. It's inevitable. As soon as you get in trouble, you know what you're going to do? You're going to call on the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. It's exactly how things are going to happen. But where on earth, let's ask a few questions. Where on earth did a judge ever become the advocate of the accused as to defend their case after they had prosecuted them. I thought the judge was there to weigh the facts of the case and then make judgment, but not in this court. God calls his people to call him. He tells his people to call him so that he may defend them from who? From himself. <laughs> God is calling his people that he may defend them not from the devil, but from himself. And this is the Lord Jesus Christ, my friends. He is the judge, he is the prosecutor, and he is the advocate for the saints. And he is saying, I will defend you against the charges that I'm going to press against you. I will stand for you. And I'll deliver you from myself. I'll press my charges against you. And then I'll defend you from me. <laughs> Why Lord? Why do such seemingly crazy things? But that's crazy. Hear the answer. He gave the answer. He <laughs> gave the answer of why he's doing something that is seemingly crazy. He says, and you shall... Glorify me. That's from verse 15 of Psalm 50. And you shall glorify me. That's all. That is all there is to it. And that is why the gospel is the gospel. It's glory. It's glory. That is why sin, death, and condemnation came into the world. Because sin... Death and condemnation bring trouble. People have to understand me. Sin, death, and condemnation bring you a lot of trouble that you can't deliver yourself from. And so he says, call on me and you shall glorify me when I deliver you from these things. So sin, death, and condemnation came into the world so that God would have a people to call on him in the day of trouble that he appointed. 
and he would be glorified when they call him to deliver them from himself. He said, and you shall glorify me. It is going to happen. You shall glorify him. You shall not glorify your choice of Christ, but him alone for delivering you. And you shall say with Jonah, salvation is of the Lord. When you believe the gospel, when you repent to Christ, you get baptized. This is what you are saying. You are saying, Lord Jesus, stand for me on that day. Be my advocate to defend me from yourself. You are being defended from God. The salvation of sinners is so that they would come and glorify Jesus as he defends them against himself. This is to the praise of his glorious grace according to Ephesians chapter 1. Okay, The grace of God has to be praised. And when God says, oh, she is righteous, guess what? It's going to be so easy for you to glorify him for all of eternity. <laughs> but is this not what Jesus already told us in John chapter 5? Here, John chapter 5, verse 22 and 23 again. The Lord said to the Jews, For the Father judges no one, but he has committed all judgment to the Son. Why? That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So salvation is to the honor of the Son that we may call upon the name of the Son. Sin, condemnation, death, the devil are all to the end that the Son will be honored, that the saints will glorify God in Christ as he saves as he advocates for them, as he vindicates his own righteousness and their own righteousness in him. <laughs> but there's something glorious. See where the Lord was coming from when he came to judge his people. Psalm 50, verse 2. See where he was coming from. The psalmist says, Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God will shine forth. God is coming from Zion. When he comes to meet with the saints. What does that mean? Why did the Holy Spirit say that? Why not just say, out of heaven, God will shine forth. Why say out of Zion? Hebrews 12. Let's go to Hebrews 12, verse 18 to 24. Oh, it's glorious. It's glorious. The writer of Hebrews says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that band with fire, and to blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who had it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. Verse 20, For they could not endure what was commanded, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. But, we are making a transition, people. But, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, 
to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. That's brilliant. That's wonderful. The Lord is not coming from Mount Sinai. The Lord, when he came to meet with his saints, was not coming from Mount Sinai, where even Moses, the mediator of the law, was terrified to death by his own law that he mediated. The text says, And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Why? Because the law condemns. It doesn't matter how people spin it. The law was given to condemn. I do not know why people do not want to run away from Mount Sinai. I don't know why they are not hearing the thunder, the lightning. They are not seeing it. Moses was terrified of the law. But some silly 21st century sinner walking in flip-flops are playing and do not understand the gospel. They want to bring us back under the bondage, under the yoke of bondage. In this text here, in Hebrews 12, we are given a contrast between the law and the gospel. And it's a very clear contrast that Mount Sinai comes with much terror. But the saints meet the Lord coming from Mount Zion. Mount Zion is found in the new covenant with Christ who is the mediator of that covenant. Mount Zion is a place of peace. And when he comes, he brings his own testament that was in his own blood, which blood speaks better things than the blood of Abel. How does the blood of Christ speak better things than the blood of Abel? Abel was murdered by his brother King. And God had the voice of Abel from the ground, his blood, it was speaking. And it was not speaking of forgiveness of sins. It was not speaking of reconciliation. It was not speaking of justification. It was speaking of revenge. The blood of Abel was speaking revenge. And yet we are told in contrast that the blood of Christ speaks better things. What better things it speaks of reconciliation. <laughs> it speaks of no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. It speaks better things. Do you see the distinction between the law and the gospel? There is a distinction. Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, those are two different covenants. So where is the foolishness of antinomianism, when we made this distinction, we did not come up with it. It's in the text. But when God shows up, he only appears to be coming from Mount Zion for the saints. It's not that he is coming from a particular mountain. It's the manner in which he is coming. When he is coming for his people, who are purchased by the blood of Christ, who are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, he comes to them as one coming from Mount Zion. He comes as one who has blood that speaks better things. But when he comes to the wicked, he's coming from Mount Sinai. So listen to this. Verse 16 of Psalm 20. 
sorry, Psalm 50, verses 16 to 22 of Psalm 50. The Lord does not come from Mount Zion for everyone. Why? Because he doesn't love everyone. Why? Because Jesus did not die to save everyone. It's only for his saints. But for this other group of people, the psalmist says, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? Seeing you hate instruction and cast my words behind you, when you saw a thief, you consented with him and have been partaker with adulterers. Now you see, they are being condemned by the law. Do you hear that? That's the law speaking now. It's talking about stealing. It's talking about killing, murdering people. You give your mouth to evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done. And I kept silent. You thought that I was altogether like you. But I will rebuke you and set them in order before your eyes. Now consider this. You who forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. He comes and mocks the unbeliever and the wicked. Hear this, he says. What right have you to declare my statutes or take my covenant in your mouth? What right do you have <laughs> to declare the things of God? Or I thought it was good for people to declare the gospel. God says, no, 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 no. not everyone. Not everyone. Not so with those who are not the saints. If you are not elect, you are in trouble. So you have people who are professing to be declaring the gospel, but they are not declaring the true gospel. And God says, what right have you to declare my statutes when you are unbelievers? You don't believe in the work of my son, the work that exalts my righteousness. And so who gave you the right to come and declare these things or take my covenant with you in your mouth? Who gave you that right? So only the elect have been given the right to declare the gospel of Christ. But God concludes and says, verse 23, whoever offers praise, now he's speaking to everyone, glorifies me. Whoever offers praise, glorifies me. Praise for what? Salvation. Because we are talking about salvation. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. Praising God for an accomplished salvation honors him. People are not getting this. Praising God for an accomplished salvation is what honors God because salvation is his work. The perfection of God's work is found in the finished work of Christ. So if you want to praise an artist, you praise them for whatever work of art they did. And the gospel is the work of God. You praise him and he loves that. And the offering of praise to God is the ordering of the conduct. God is saying, if you want to order your conduct, check your gospel. <laughs> and when you have ordered your gospel right, you cannot come to any other conclusion but to praise him for a finished work. Okay? So to say things that are true about God and his Christ is offering thanksgiving that is acceptable to him. And God says to these, he will show the salvation of God. 
Isaiah 54, 17. We're almost done. Isaiah 54, 17, Isaiah says, No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. This is the hope of the saints on judgment day. That verse was also put in the context of judgment. Okay, This is the hope of the saints on judgment day. God says, no weapon formed against you shall prosper as to condemn you on that day. No weapon. Zero. What is that saying? There is no sin that shall arise to condemn you. It shall not prosper. There is no tongue that can rise against the believer as to condemn them on that day. It does not matter what the accuser are going to say, even if it's true. That will not prosper. Why? God gave the reason. This is the reason that he gave. The Lord is their righteousness. <laughs> the righteousness of the servants and saints of God is from me, says the Lord. These servants have the righteousness that God gave them. No one can bring a charge against God. There's no one who can bring a charge against God. If you were just an angel, I could find something wrong to accuse you. Because in the book of Job somewhere, it says, God even finds fault with his own angels. So if you had the righteousness of angels, I could find something wrong to accuse you by, but you have the righteousness of God himself. You have the perfection of holiness and righteousness. And, 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 and God says, no one can bring a charge against him. So none can bring a charge against one who has the righteousness of God. If no one can bring a charge against God, then there's no one who can bring a charge against one who has the righteousness of God. <laughs> Why? Because it's perfect. It's perfect. So what is that saying? It is saying there's no righteousness ever to be found in you. There is no righteousness that you could bring that would make you a Teflon pan. You know, you know that Teflon pans that when you're cooking, nothing sticks? Non-sticky pan? Okay? It's only the righteousness of God that makes you a non-sticky pan. I'm serious. That is the only righteousness that cannot be condemned. Any other righteousness is going to have something that's going to burn in that pan. <laughs> and it's going to produce a stench and it's going to get you condemned. So there's no righteousness to be found in you and me. The righteousness that vindicates a sinner from judgment is going to all come from him. It comes from him. It is his righteousness. Romans 8, 31 to 34. And we close. What then shall we say to these things? What then? If God is for us, who can be against us? God is for us even as he is bringing us into judgment. But he is bringing us not to condemn us, but to vindicate. 
and to declare our righteousness that he has given us. He brings us into judgment to say to all your enemies, so what? I'm serious. It is the same testimony that he gave Zechariah in Zechariah chapter 3 when the devil came and he was pressing charges. Zechariah had on an unclean garment, filthy garment, full of sin. And the devil was right in accusing Zechariah before the throne of God. But God says, he's mine. Is this not a branch that was plucked out of the fire? God used election to say, stop it. No weapon formed against him could prosper. And God went ahead and gave him new clothes, clean garments. Let's finish off here with the next two verses, three verses. Apostle Paul says, verse 32 of Romans 8, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also a reason. Who is even at the right hand of God. Who also makes intercession for us. Is that not the context of Psalm 50? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who brought the charges. But then he defended for us. It's Christ who makes intercession for us. He is our advocate. So he has given us his righteousness and he is going to vindicate his righteousness. And that gospel is very good news. God has found for you and me both a judge and advocate whose blood speaks better things for us. We want someone who represents our constituency. Our constituency is a very bad constituency. We belong to the constituency of sinners. And we need representation in the high places. And God has given us a representative in the person of Christ Jesus to speak life for us, to speak forgiveness for us, to speak of righteousness for us, to speak of vindication from all sin for us. And that is the gospel of free and sovereign grace. Praise the Lord. Amen. I'm done. We are going to have communion, so I'm going to do this.